Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. In our continuing series on dementia, we visit with Dr. Betty J. Lacey, a clinical psychiatrist based in Ukiah, California, whose focus is the prevention, care, and treatment of people with dementia. In this program, we discuss Alzheimer's disease. This chronic neurodegenerative disease usually starts slowly when a person is about 60 years old and worsens over time and is the cause of 60 to 70% of cases of dementia. Dr. Lacey tells the story of Alois Alzheimer's, the German psychiatrist and neuropathologist. He's the person credited with identifying the first published case of pre-senile dementia, which would later be identified as Alzheimer's disease. In this, the first of two visits with Dr. Lacey, she shares personal experiences with her parents, both of whom suffer from Alzheimer's disease. She and her two siblings each carry the gene called APOE4, which increases a person's susceptibility to this disease. She explains the benefits of being tested and identifies specific ways to retard and possibly prevent the onset of Alzheimer's. When Betty Lacey visited Radio Curious on July 7, 2017, we began with her description of her parents' conditions and their states of mind. I'll begin with just saying I'm an expert of two. So both my parents have dementia. Uh, My mother um, has had dementia for about the last um, eight or nine years, and my father also around um, a little bit longer than that, probably nine to ten years. They're both living. They both require assistance. Can you tell us about their state of mind? That gets into the question of what is dementia. So dementia is a progressive decline in memory and cognition, and it affects our behavior, affects our day-to-day living, our relationships with others, our functionality, and it is a progressive um, neurodegenerative disease of which there are many and many causes of dementia. Well, let's start with the uh, most common one, Alzheimer's. As we look at the dementia spectrum, 75% of dementias are caused by Alzheimer's disease. Before we get too far into uh, the aspects of Alzheimer's disease, tell us about the person that this disease was named after. Oh, yeah, that's an that's a important story. Alois Alzheimer's in 1906 discovered the disease based on the presentation of a woman in her 50s who had essentially delusions. She was brought into the institution that he worked in, and um, he found her uh, presentation very uh, disconcerting to him. She was delusional. She couldn't function. She didn't recognize her family. um, And she eventually succumbed to the disease, couldn't feed herself, and um, and he decided to uh, autopsy her brain. In her brain, he discovered something very unique that had never been seen before. 
Um, and that was what we call now amyloid placking, these white kind of gooey plaques that are on the surface and inside of the brain. What causes amyloid placking? Amyloid is a messenger that something has gone wrong with the brain's ability to fight its what we would call janitorial service. There is essentially white blood cells that we call macrophages that go in and normally clean up the brain when there is infection or substances that don't belong there. But for some reason, that process is not working and amyloid builds up. Sometimes what could cause that? Potentially many things. One could be that there is an infection in the brain. For instance, we know that many times infections that lay in the nervous system, dormant, can, for instance, herpes disease, can actually be kind of um, a precursor to Alzheimer's disease and a risk factor for that. So that's something that we actually test for. Another thing that we know is that there are genetic determinants that make amyloid more of a possibility in developing because there is inflammation happening in the brain. And that's a big subject right now in terms of one of the precursors to amyloid and to Alzheimer's in general. We're actually looking at inflammatory markers in the body that could portend the development of the disease. The inflammatory markers in the body, mm -hmm. those are genetic. Yes. One of the things that we know that has been somewhat not really fully acknowledged in the medical community, but acknowledged in the scientific community, is that there is essentially a susceptibility to Alzheimer's, and that susceptibility is genetic. There are many different factors that co-contribute to Alzheimer's. First off, might be genetic. Second off, might be cardiovascular disease. So we know that if your heart is not working, that then that heart is not pumping blood into the brain properly. You're going to get more tendency towards stroke, towards infection, as we just mentioned. Then there are other metabolic factors that can co-contribute to Alzheimer's, such as diabetes. If you have diabetes, your risk is actually going to increase about 20% towards Alzheimer's disease. We have cardiovascular, we have metabolic, we have genetic factors and inflammatory factors. Those are the four main areas that we can actually now follow and look at when people come in to see, are you going to be at risk for this disease as you age? At what age are the examinations best made to determine if a person could be at risk? Well, people should be tested around 45 to 50 years of age and have what's called, this is going to be a new term, a cognoscopy. We talk about colonoscopies, going in and looking at the colon. This is going to be an actual looking at one's cognition at 45 and 50 and looking at these cofactors that I just named. Genetically, are you at risk? Are you at risk with some of your cardiovascular factors? 
are there metabolic risks, your sugars, are they within normal limits? Are you tending towards diabetes? And finally, inflammatory markers in the body. But the last group are off physical risks, examination of blood primarily. Yes. How yes. about the first group, cognition? Why would a person voluntarily want to have those tests? The recommendation now is that everybody have this, but why would you want to have it is a really good question. And this is something that I get into a lot with people because really dementia is the number one health concern. Memory and cognition is the number one health concern of people that are aging. And we're all aging. And of course, aging is the number one risk factor for this disease. So we should all be concerned. However, as we know, fear just leads us more into the closet. It doesn't lead us into really dealing with these um, problems. So we really want to bring them out in the open and get educated about what we can do to face into these and really understand what our risk is. So why would somebody do this? They would do it because they would want to know what their risk factors were and how likely it is they would have Alzheimer's disease. Many of us know this. You know, I knew that I was going to be at risk for this disease. I didn't understand the full capacity of that awareness, but I knew my mother has the disease, has Alzheimer's disease. My grandmother, I grew up with her. She was probably having symptoms when I was at least nine or 10. She came to live with us. And then my great-grandmother also had the disease. So I am the fourth generation. I had awareness that this was on the forefront, but it really wasn't until I think I hit my late 50s, early 60s, that I started to think, wow, I really, I could be at risk, you know, for this disease, and to really begin to do something about it. Betty, being in the fourth generation uh, in your family with Alzheimer's, uh, that implies that you have been tested. Yes. How'd um, you do that? Yeah, this is so important for people to know because, again, one of the risk factors of getting Alzheimer's is a genetic risk. So remember, uh, with late-onset disease, um, you can have what's called a gene that actually makes you more likely to develop this disease. And that can be tested for now, actually, on 23andMe. So all you need to do is get the 23andMe and... Um, get that information. I'm working with people periodically who, again, as, as we talk about this disease, there's a lot of fear because there's a lack of education and knowledge about it. So I'm working with people sometimes just to talk about testing um, uh, before they're tested, because they really want to know, okay, what, you know, what is this going to tell me um, once I'm tested? But so I was tested, and our whole family was tested, actually. And it was an interesting um, uh, situation because we knew that my mother most likely had a genetic tendency towards this. As I mentioned, we had a strong family history. Uh, but the surprise was when we were tested that um, my uh, uh, brother ended up having a copy, both turns out two copies of the um, uh, Alzheimer's susceptibility gene, which is also known as the APOE4 gene. It's a cholesterol-carrying gene that 
is actually carrying cholesterol in the body and in the brain. We're not really sure how that manifests Alzheimer's disease, but we just know that it's a risk. So my brother uh, has two copies. That meant my father had to carry one copy. You get one copy from your mother, one copy from your father. Um, and um, I uh, have also that susceptibility. I have one copy of, of that, of the APOE4 gene. My sister has one copy, um, and my mother has one copy. There's several aspects there. One is that it seems that women are at greater risk than men. You're absolutely right. Why? Do we know? We really don't know, but we certainly have some ideas about that. Um, what changes in women as we age? Hormones, right? Top of the list. We go through menopause, we stop menstruating, and also our estrogen drops quite low. In our menstruating years is up anywhere from, um, you know, depending upon our, our cycle, up into the range of 100 and above. And when we go through menopause, drops below 20. So that's where we know that there are definite hormonal shifts. And we can see that definitely estrogen has some neuroplasticity effects in the brain. By that, I mean, it changes the brain, dependent upon its levels. Now, most women could tell you that because we cycle. So we know, and maybe our partners can tell too, we know that when we're cycling, our estrogen levels, our progesterone, testosterone, all go up and down, and we change our mentation, our mood, our behavior sometimes uh, when we're cycling. Let's get back to cognition, the way cognition is tested. Cognition really needs very specific tests. So that would be the neuropsychological tests. What do those tests consist of? It's a battery of tests called the neuropsychological tests. And there are many. It's measuring intelligence. It's measuring doing things like trail making, um, testing short, long-term um, memory. So it's a, a about a three to five-hour test. Um, many tests specifically looking at the brain's ability in different parts of the brain to uh, to function, remember, and to think, have insight and judgment. We're visiting with Dr. Betty Lacey, a psychiatrist based in Ukiah, California, the home of Radio Curious, and the focus of her practice is geriatric dementia. This is Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Betty, these neuropsychiatric tests that you speak of that take several hours, it seems to me that the economics of those tests would limit them to a very small segment of the population. Yet, as I understand the prevalence, uh, as you've explained it, of Alzheimer's, yeah. uh, it's not an economic limitation. It affects all of us. So this is a problem. We are not really looking at how best to intervene and understand the extent of this disease at an early stage. That is one of the problems that we have with this disease right now. We definitely have treatment for it. We may even have cure. But one of the challenging parts is how do we begin to intervene in the early stages? And how do we test 
for memory and cognition. So you're absolutely right, Barry, with the neuropsychological testing, most people maybe can't do this three to five hour, but this is how we, be, we, we really need to shift our thinking about this. If we started this testing out early in our 50s, this would be something that would be accepted. But certainly people will have resistances. But I think that this is the way that we really need to go. We really need to start addressing looking at this disorder early on with specific education, testing, and beginning at an earlier age group as well. There's the three to five hour testing that's the neuropsychological testing that has to be done by a psychologist. But there's also testing many of us do in our offices called the mini mental status exam. These are tests that take maybe 10 minutes and do a very brief evaluation of cognition and memory. If I start to see changes in that over time, then I immediately secure the neuropsychological testing. So generally, looking on a worldwide basis, Alzheimer's affects people anywhere, and it begins to have an onset at what age? The disease is actually split into two variables. One is early onset Alzheimer's, which can begin as early as 30, 40, or 50s. And then there is late onset dementia, which usually begins in your 60s. The majority of Alzheimer's is the late onset, and only about 5 to 10% is the uh, early onset Alzheimer's disease. The numbers are astronomical. We have 5.4 million people in our country that are struggling with Alzheimer's disease, 26 million worldwide. That number is expected in the next 30 years to triple, maybe quadruple. So we're really talking about a pandemic of dementia throughout our world because we're aging. And of course, aging is the number one risk factor. What are some of the things that can be done? We can reduce the risk of acquiring it, and we can also uh, reduce the consequences of the disease. How is the reduction Uh, or the prevention introduced? Here's the interesting thing about this disease. I think a lot of people don't want to know if they have this disease because they're scared. You know, they're in fear. And we have not done a good job because we're just learning about this disease. We're really in the infancy of it to look at these overall factors that have made a difference. So what makes a difference? If we look at those four areas that I talked about, First of all, um, looking at genetic factors, if you have the Alzheimer's susceptibility gene, then that's going to put you at greater risk. If you knew that early on, and you could start to mitigate that risk with your diet, with your exercise, with learning, with reducing your stress, many different kinds of factors have been shown to reduce, again, our risk and even reverse, and I'm using that very strongly here today, reversing Alzheimer's disease. There have been small studies with that. The most prominent is the UCLA study done in 2014 with Dale Bredesen, who's a neurologist, who's a researcher. He basically took 10 people all with memory impairment, and he put them on a program that involved 38 variables, lifestyle changes, supplements, exercise, meditation, 
He even had people use like a water pick and make sure that they were flossing every night as a way to reduce bacteria. Nine out of 10 people, he was able to reduce their memory impairment significantly and in some reverse it. Let's talk about the variables that you mentioned. Just to highlight a few of these, the acronym is called SLEDS. That stands for, of these variables, is the importance of sleep to actually have adequate sleep. This is really important, particularly as we age, because as we age, a lot of people have less sleep than they should. So that's the S of SLEDS. What is the L? L is my favorite one, uh, learning. It's probably your favorite too, Barry. I think the two of us have that in common. So learning, being stimulated, stimulating the brain. The brain is like a muscle. So, you know, this is where there's a lot of hope that, I don't know if you remember, but when we grew up, there was this um, mythology about the brain that um, it didn't grow after 16. Your personality was, you know, um, concretized, essentially. And so now we know that's absolutely not true, that the brain is always learning. Continuing to learn and stimulate the brain is absolutely paramount as we age, I see aging as an exciting time for us to really lean into the interests that we haven't had time to devote to, much like you're doing here with Radio Curious. And the E of sleds. The big one, probably the most important exercise. Exercise needs to be lifelong. It needs to be five days to six days a week. It needs to be 30 to 45 minutes to an hour every day. And you need to have your heart rate up. Your heart rate needs to be at an aerobic level. What does that mean? There's a specific formula for figuring that out. You need to be having a hard time speaking to really get that aerobic hit. Basically more oxygen, more blood, more cleansing, go up into the brain and clean it and get rid of toxins. And how about the D in SLED? Um, That would be diet. The uh, risk of diabetes increases your risk of dementia by 20%. So we really want to keep your sugars down. That means your blood glucose. And we want to make sure that the food that you're eating is more vegetable-based. You have protein, but it's a moderate amount. The diet that seems to be more focused for the future is a Mediterranean-based diet. By saying Mediterranean, we have to be really cautious. We really need to uh, reduce down our um, glycemic index, essentially, of our foods. Can you define glycemic index? What that means is essentially how much sugar is going to enter the system from the food that you eat, and then the insulin that is required for that to be metabolized And that sugar then to go into the cell and create energy, which is what is needed and part of the physiological process. Herein lies this euphemism, you you might have heard of it, it's called diabetes 3, where sugars go up, insulin resistance rises because we only have so much insulin to go around once we load up with glucose, breads, pastas, sugars, fruit juice, sodas, etc., then essentially we're using more and more of our sugar and we're also using more and more of our insulin. Insulin is a hormone in the brain. Once it goes down in the brain, 
there isn't any way back in terms of its ability to replenish itself. And with that, cells die, neurons die. And that's when we are coining this term called diabetes type 3, where the insulin is not available for the brain. There are some studies now to show insulin put in via a spray, a nasal spray, that goes right into the brain quickly, may actually improve memory and cognition. And the last one, stress. One of those 36 variables we were talking about is implementing an awareness of stress. So practicing things like mindfulness and yoga, tai chi, these kinds of things that slow the body's response to stress via what's called parasympathetic nervous system that breaks or reduces the impact of the sympathetic or adrenalized uh, system. So how do we deal with the question of stress reduction in situations where there is no access, for example, to fresh water? Right. This is a story of the have and the have not. So right now we know in Western culture that Alzheimer's is very high. We don't really know. Uh, we're not measuring it so much. We, we believe it is the same rate throughout the world. And the World Health Organization is saying that. But we do know that there might be a little less of this disease in India. There is some speculation that, again, their diet is very different than ours. It's actually full of turmeric, an anti-inflammatory agent. What can we do when you don't have water and you feel there's a risk of Alzheimer's disease in your family um, and you're living in sub-Sahara Africa? I would hope, and, and I have a lot of hope around this disease, that we provide more education for people so they can begin to implement some of these 36 um, factors that we were talking about today. You have mentioned in retrospect how we have dealt with the AIDS epidemic. How would that fit in to dealing with the Alzheimer's epidemic? Great question. The AIDS model is a really important model from a lot of different angles. First off, when you think about AIDS, the fear was rampant. If we get exposed, or are we going to get this disease, etc.? Eventually, what reduced the fear? Education. What reduced the fear more and significantly was also testing, because we know that information education is power when there's fear. It is a chronic disease, but that we can impact it just like we have with AIDS, not only with medicine, but also with significant lifestyle, diet, stress relieving, and stimulating activities. Well, Dr. Betty Lacey, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious in part one of our discussion of dementia and Alzheimer's. Thanks so much, Barry. Dr. Betty J. Lacey is a clinical psychiatrist based in Ukiah, California, whose focus is the prevention, care, and treatment of people with dementia, with which both of her parents are afflicted. She and her two siblings each carry a gene identified as APOE4, which increases a person's susceptibility to Alzheimer's. In the next edition of Radio Curious, Dr. Lacey discusses how to deal with this disease, and suggestions for family and friends of a person who suffers from Alzheimer's. The book, 
Betty Lacey recommends, which she will explain at the end of our next interview, is He Wanted the Moon, The Madness and Medical Genius of Dr. Perry Baird and His Daughter's Quest to Know Him by Mimi Baird and Eve Claxton. This program was recorded on July 7, 2017. There are over 630 archive editions of Radio Curious on our website, radiocurious.org. They're free to listen, download, and share anytime, anywhere as my gift to you. We appreciate your comments, ideas, and suggestions and like to hear from you. Email is curious at radiocurious.org. Snail mail is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. And the phone is 707-462-6541. Christina Onestead is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.